This episode is part of our ongoing series with Queen's University Belfast, where we have the chance to sit down with an interesting student, professor, or graduate once a month to hear and share their story. To find out more and listen to all the other episodes and conversations in this series, please visit bestofbelfast.org forward slash queens. Today, I had the absolute pleasure of sitting down with Eileen Murphy, a professor of archaeology and a leading expert in ancient human remains and burial practices. Her real passion is for telling the stories of ordinary people whose voices have been largely written out of history, and she's also the author and editor of 12 books, including a book all about Takabuti, the Belfast mummy who's currently living in the Ulster Museum, who, as you'll hear, inspired Eileen to get into archaeology as a child. In today's episode, we talk all about growing up with a sense of awe and adventure about the world around her, some of the weird and wonderful things discovered right here on our doorstep, what the past can teach us about the present, the rights of the living versus the rights of the dead, why a sense of place is an essential part of our well-being, lessons learned from studying thousands of human skeletons, and the greatest highs and lows of her journey so far. Thanks so much for being here, and we really hope that you enjoy. What did you have for breakfast? I had um, whole grain toast with um, free-range egg, and I know they're free-range egg because they came from my hen. Ooh! (laughs) Yeah, you don't need to trust anybody else's standards. You know exactly. And can I just say, they're very special hens because they come from um, a rescue centre, Nuthouse Rescue Centre in Moira, where Barbara... She rescues, um, you know, hens that have come to the end of their life in in the egg producing industry. And then people like me come and we adopt them. And they have a lovely wee life, you know, roaming free. And they're brilliant wee layers. Well, I mean, this sounds like the like the type of box of eggs you could sell for like a fiver. It's got all the layers to it. It's got the free range. It's got the rescue chicken. I mean, people are into that. People are. And do you know what? They're the best wee pets. They're lovely, mm. lovely wee nature and produce great eggs. And I, I mean, I'm plugging this because I thoroughly rec- recommend people to go and rescue some some wee ex-battery yeah. hens or so ex-farm. Y- my wife's going to hate you already. <laughs> I am like in the middle of trying to turn... Uh, I'm just oh, for some reason I don't know if it was a lockdown thing. Just really got into like wanting to grow vegetables and like producing some young food. And look at all this, you know. You have a garden and what's it used for other than grass? You know, and you need to do something else with it. Absolutely. And chickens is the next thing on the list. I know, and we were the same. Aren't we? Got into vegetables and all during lockdown. Yeah. But but I've had hens for quite a while, and I, and I actually think it's in my genetics because my granny, um, both of my grannies would have had hens. You know, and my granny down in Derry Gonley and Fermanagh. Um, she actually had her own wee industry. Oh wow! And, and a lot of women, you know, in 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 those days, early early mid twentieth century, you know, that was their way of generating their own income, you know, as well as feeding their family. So I kind of I love the way I've kind of connected to her that yeah, way, yeah. you know. That's interesting because I've seen a lot in the entrepreneurial space, say in countries like Africa, it's all about getting people, you know, an animal to generate an income for mm-hmm. their family. And it is women as well. You know, they'll like, you know, I remember saying like, like pig, like a pig business. Uh-huh, like, you uh-huh. know, I don't know, a pig costs maybe 15 quid over there. And if they can get a pig, they can basically spin it into a whole business. And then, you know, the pigs have babies and then they've got themselves yeah. like an empire. And you're like, wow. 
we were like that too, you know. Absolutely, and that's the way. I mean, obviously, I'm an archaeologist. That's the way people in the past would yeah. have existed. You know, there was none of this going out to the supermarket and buying a ready meal. Everything they had, they had to either, you know, they had to gather the materials and make the houses and, you know, grow their own crops, harvest them, pr- pr- turn them into bread or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the same with all the animals, you know, they had to raise them and m- ensure they kind of had the circle of life continuing, you know, so that they, their supplies didn't die out. Yeah. So the human-animal-land interaction is incredibly important, you know, past, present and future. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's crazy to me because, you know, here I am with a couple of raised beds, mainly growing salads. And I'm like, oh, how cool. I'll not have to buy salads for, you know, four months out of the year. But if you think about it, like, if all your supermarkets disappear and you and your family are responsible for feeding you and your family... Mm -hmm. Like, I can't even begin to imagine where you would start, never mind doing that with a whole community, you know. it's And that's how people lived. I know, it was a, a collection of really large families that worked the land and had to be strategic about planting stuff. And if the crops failed, it was really, mm-hmm. really bad news, like, you know. No, definitely people in the past, like, they did have very close community bonds, you mm-hmm. know. And in some of the, the eras that I study, like the early medieval period, there would have been fosterage practices. And, you know, that would have even further enhanced community connections. And, you know, say... Um, what does child, that mean? What's fosterage? Fosterage is when you... Um, your child is sent off to be reared by another family. Uh, so not blood relatives. Yeah. Um, and they seem to have done that across all different social classes. Interesting. You know, and but it meant then that there were really tight-knit communities because it wasn't just blood relations. It was all these fosterage connections. And one of the populations uh, we studied in recent years most of the people, most of the adults were dying when they were very young, you know, so between mm-hmm. 18 and 35. So we think that that might have been a way then to cope with all the orphan children. You know, as well. So there's wow. kind of good sense, you know, to, to have them tight knit communities working together, you know, to support each other. Yeah, if the uh, if the family unit or if the parent unit is uh, not sustainable because the parents keep dying so young, you kind of need to find a different system to, to manage the child rearing, don't you? Absolutely. Interesting. You know? And if you think today, you know, a lot of we're, we expect people to live into old age. So yeah. we, we expect to have grandparents, even great grandparents. But, you know, in the past, they would have still had some people, you know, and maybe people would have been grandparents younger, but um, it would have been a very different way of dealing with sort of intergenerational relationships. Do you think that's why elders were so respected historically? Because they were so like in short numbers. And if they were, you know, if you had gray hair, you were walking around and everyone was like, whoa, this person has lived long enough to get gray hair. <laughs> I definitely think, yeah, there would have, there would have been great respect to older people. Um, but you have to as well remember, you know, we rely very much on the written word and, and mm. you know, books and obviously now the internet. But it would have been, you know, information that was being passed down from generation to generation in yeah. the past. So yeah. the older people would have potentially been the greatest repositories of that knowledge. Wow. So that have been really important, you know, even just in their storytelling capabilities and passing down traditions and legends and practicalities to the yeah. younger generations. Yeah, don't ask Google, ask Granda. Exactly. If you can imagine <laughs> them, you know, if they're maybe infirm and sort of in, inside their cottage with all the kids sitting around listening yeah. to them and then also then looking after those children so their parent could parents could go out and work yeah I, th- I think it's really interesting like it's almost back to that idea that it takes a village to raise a child do you know mm-hmm. what I mean and like the, the the community links and the the inbuilt support were were phenomenal there I'm curious like what about what was your experience like growing up like 
were the people around you interested in archaeology? Was that something that you were fascinated by from a young age or did that come later? Speak a wee bit to that. Okay, so um, I think my parents have obviously greatly influenced me and they were they both had an adventurous um, spirit, shall we say. So um, when they got married, they decided... They weren't going to just stay in Northern Ireland. They went off to Zambia for a couple of years oh um, and they worked as teachers and then I was born out there. What? So, yeah, so, so I kind of had that, I suppose, an exotic start, mm. you know, um, and they, they gave me my second name. People always see like Eileen M. Murphy and they probably think it's like Mary or Margaret or some Irish name, but it's actually Masonda. Oh, wow. So that's my, you know, wee legacy of, of where, I, where yeah. I was born. Um, what does Masonda mean? Okay, so mum always said it was a, a god or a goddess. You know, it was one of these that was neither male nor female. Um, but if you look on Wikipedia, <laughs> there's actually a few more different. There's um, uh, one, I think one de- definition was pioneer and another one was the taster. So I kind of found that quite intriguing. I like that. I like you know? both of those definitions. Yeah, uh, and it was actually, I never thought of doing that. It was actually um, one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Jerry Miller, who who pointed this out to me quite recently wow. so he, he taught me something new <laughs> the pioneer and the taster yeah so there you that's go cool so yeah so i think i wonder if the god you know was the god of food <laughs> yeah you know or, you know if there was some sort of a link to that it that would be. be interesting i do i need to do a bit you gotta more. do a bit of digging there i do you? need to now yeah but um so they were both you know pretty adventurous well, absolutely you know, yeah. obviously like 1969 when they got married it was sort of the troubles here so they wanted to escape for a bit yeah but there's a difference between going over to England and going to Zambia Zambia. I know and I don't (laughs) think my dad had had much experience of being outside the country wow mum had travelled around Europe but so yeah so they kind of didn't do it in half measures they just went for it so um, and then they've all they would have always we always travelled you know when I was a kid during the summer and um, so I think that kind of um you know, notion of exploring was was instilled in me in a young age. Um, and even just, like I said before, exploring our local countryside. You know, I loved getting out and round and looking looking for, um, I don't know, stone, special stones and going into caves and just out around the landscape. And I, I do remember now spent spent the summer at my cousin's and we, my uncle obviously thought we, we needed something to do and we were out excavating a, an old brass bed. We spent a whole summer nice. excavating this treasure you know, so that was, again, us out in the countryside. I think it was an old bed that was like in a ditch or, or you know, in a, in a lane way to kind mm. of give a firm footing. Um, so what is it about you? Okay, so go back to the brass uh-huh. bed and you've got, let's say, three children the same age doing the same project. One of them will love it for 10 minutes mm-hmm. and then be like, this is the worst thing ever. <laughs> the second one will do it out of a sense of duty because mm-hmm. they'll, you know, they're, they're hard-willed and they really want to just get the job done. And then there's maybe a third child that's like just sees the the magic to it all. What is it about you that like even that brass bed, the fact you remember it, why was it so enjoyable? I just think it was really exciting. I think I've always I've always been kind of inquisitive. And I, and I mean, he'd obviously told us this was treasure, so sure. and it's shiny, you know. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So that was really exciting. But I think, um, I don't know, I think I always liked thinking about the past, you know, and yeah. I also, I remember like a school trip from our wee primary school at Killyhaman in Bow um, and we, we went out and we went for a walk around the lock that was beside us and there was a cranog on the lock and I just remember being blown away by this idea that people had made an, an island to live on. Crazy. Um, you know, so those were, those were kind of, you know, in my local, in my context, little experiences that kind of, I think, mm. 
paved the way for what I would end up becoming. Um, and another, when, when, when I was very young, we lived in Glengormley before we moved to Fermanagh. Oh, cool. And um, Takabuti in the Ulster Museum, she... A very influential woman in your life. Absolutely. No, I mean, I can just remember mum taking me and my cousins, my cousin Joanne, and we'd, we would... She'd take us to the Ulster Museum because I think she knew it was somewhere she could enjoy wandering Absolutely. about. And we would just do our own yeah. thing and wander about. And Joanne and I would always have made a beeline to go and see Takabuti. And, you know... I remember just... Who, who is Takabuti for people who don't okay, know? Okay, so Takabuti is um, a mummified Egyptian woman who's on display in the Ulster Museum. So she's now got a lovely room of her own, you know, oh, wow. surrounded by Luxury. you know Egyptian objects. But when I was like a six-year-old or whatever, seven-year-old, she was she had, she had was in... I just remember it being this big black space and you had to yeah. go up big black steps and she would sort of appear out of the gloom. And... I remember being a bit, maybe a bit scared, but more absolutely intrigued and fascinated by who is this amazing yeah. woman that's lying in front of me. Um, and there were some bits of information, but it didn't really talk about Takabuti. It talked about ancient Egypt and life in ancient Egypt. Mm -hmm. So um, I have to say that one of my real dreams come true was to actually get to study Takabuti, to learn more about her, you know, as a, as a person, who she was. Um, so this was a, a project. It started off back about 2006, seven, eight, around then, when the Ulster Museum closed. Do you remember yeah. there was the major pe period of refurbishment? Um, and Ian Dugan, who's, who sadly now passed away, he he um, got in touch with me because he wanted to do like a, a documentary about Takabuti because like me, he had been totally enthralled by her when he was a child. And, wow. and he really had this idea that he wanted to know what her face was like. What did she mm -hmm. look like when she was alive? So that kind of started the whole process. And, you know, we... We got a team that was from Queen's University Belfast and the University of Manchester and we came together and um, Takabuti went on a road trip over to <laughs> Manchester. She got on a, on a lorry and then on a bus and she was um, recorded, you know, x-rayed and CT scanned over in the University of Manchester. Um, and we learned a lot of information about her during that period, you know, um, there was a strange package in her chest and we, we thought at that time maybe it was her heart because the heart was the ticket to the afterlife. And um, if you didn't have your heart, you couldn't get go before the god Osiris and get weighed against on the, your heart and the feather of truth. Because um, if, if you were a good person in life, your heart would be nice and light. Mm. If you were a bad person, your heart would be heavy and then you get thrown into this, this sort of devil creature, the devourer. But if you were good, you could go on into, into the afterlife. But anyway, so... We, we'd learned that and we'd learned, you know, about her hair and that, you know, she had her own hair and it was curled and cut um, before, she, you know, around the time of her death. Um, but then it sort of all came to a, a halt and the project resumed again then just over the last couple of years. So oh, wow. 2018. So um, this was, it was a project that was funded by the Friends of the Ulster Museum and the Queen's Engaged Research Fund. And basically, we were allowed into the museum on a day that was closed and Takabuti's room was turned into almost like an autopsy room. <laughs> um, so she was taken out of her, her coffin and um, Dr. Robert Loins um, from, from the University of Manchester, he basically used a biopsy needle and was able to take samples. And Mark Reagan, who's from um, Kingsbridge Private Hospital up the Lisburn Road, um, he brought his x-ray machine in and we were able to record her and get really precise samples. And, wow. and Mark was another one who, as a kid, Takabuti, he went used to go to see Takabuti all the time and she really inspired him. So basically, 
the all of the information came together and we we produced a book and I've I've got a copy for you. Oh yes. There's your very Come own on. copy. Thank you so much. The tactics. There's the face, there There's she the is. Face. Isn't she beautiful? She is great. So um so yes, yeah, so so it was Rosalie David, the, the Manchester lead and myself, we kind of coordinated the book, but it's got contributions by, you know, everybody who was involved in the project. So, you know, we talked about the history and when she came to Belfast in 1834 and, you know, where her body has been, you know. Why on earth did she come to Belfast? She came to Belfast because um, a man called Thomas Gregg, he bought her. Basically, at a at a mummy market. So what a mummy market! Yeah, so he he would have been a wealthy young man. I think his father was um, the high sheriff of Antrim, wow. and um, as part of their education, people, wealthy f- men and women would have been sent out, you know, around Europe to kind of increase their educational experience and become more cultured and different things. But sometimes they went as far as Egypt, um, and. One of the prized possessions then, the prized sort of souvenir, was to get a mummy or a piece of a mummy. Mm. So Thomas Gregg bought Takabuti. Um, but now, thankfully, he brought her back to Belfast. And instead of just having her on display in his house, which a lot of them would have done, sure, he donated <laughs> her to the um, Belfast Naturalist History Society. Wow. And... Um, they were absolutely delighted because they, they were trying to sort of build up their collections, yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah. And... She was, so they had established the Belfast Museum, I think it was in 1831, so just a few years previously. So she then became, you know, a prized display in their museum. And she was unwrapped in 1835 um, down in the museum. So there's still, you can see the room upstairs and it's got a lovely balcony and you can just imagine like all the, the sort of the delegates standing around. Um, so this was overseen by the Reverend Dr. Edward Hinks, who was a great genius. He was a rector of Killyleigh, but he was able to interpret hieroglyphs and cuneiform. Oh and goodness. He was doing this amazing work from a rectory in Killyleigh, you know, when all his kind of rivals would have been working in places like Oxford and Cambridge and, you know, having all the, the humongous resources available to them. So he he was able to then... So, so you can just imagine all these great men standing around... Um, and, you know, going to then study Takabuti. And they had an artist there who did a painting of her before she was unwrapped. Um, and the, the uh, what's his name? Davis, the, the Belfast Belfast man, who he wrote a couple of poems about mm-hmm. her as well. So it was real media, a frenzy. Wow. And um, we know about it from newspaper accounts of the day. So the Belfast news, newsletter has a big, a big spiel about what happened. And Edward Hinks translated the hieroglyphs on her coffin and said that her name was Kabuti. And then this was later changed to Takabuti. Um, her father was a priest of Amun. So he was called Nesper and then her mother was called Tassinerit. Um, it said that Takabuti was the lady of a great house and the mistress of a house. So she probably was married um, but we don't know if she had any children and we don't know anything about her husband. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they sort of described her bandaging and they talked about her being very petite. You know, she's only, she is only about five foot one and they talked about her hair. Um, they were even able to sort of identify that her bandages were made from linen rather wow. than flax. And I mean, Belfast at that time would have been Linneopolis and, mm-hmm. you know, big centre of flax, of linen production. Um and they just talked about her features and, and they did phrenology. Have you heard of that? Never. Okay, so it's kind of when they analyze the shape of a person's head or skull. Okay. To kind of, so you, sometimes you see those kind of busts, you know, you've got a skull and then it's got writing on it and it's yeah. all apportioned. So that's what they did. And it was believed to be a genuine science. science. Um, so they, they said about her, you know, I think loving animals and children <laughs> and being a person, person of great character, but 
of little or no taste, which ah. I thought was. <laughs> I must admit, I like that. It's a poor old Takabiti had bad taste. Oh, absolutely know. no Masanda. Like. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the big shocker was that she had a, a weapon injury. Oh. So poor Takabiti, who I always thought looked extremely peaceful and <laughs> serene in her coffin, she'd actually um, had a big blow, like an axe blow to her, the back of her, her back on the left shoulder. And um, we think that probably killed her from catastrophic bleeding. Madness. Um, and then the mysterious package that I, we'd discovered, you know, 10 odd years ago, turned out to be um, like a plug, like a cloth plug to maybe staunch the bleeding and stuff, you know, pack the wound. Um, because Bob Loins, he, he found that her heart was still in its right place oh, and it had wow. been taken out, wrapped up and put back in. So you had the heart in the middle and then this pack over at the left. Interesting. So, um, so it looks like she was maybe running away from an assailant. Um, she lived at a time of great conflict, you know, between the Nubians and the Assyrians. So mm. maybe she was caught up in a war or we don't really know, you know, why she died, but she died in a violent manner. And I just love this because it, it really paints the picture of like, how much you can tell. You know, you're like Sherlock Holmes, like looking at like this bit of information and how it links to this bit of information, how that builds the story, how it builds the full case and how you know, you, you start to reconstruct what could have happened. I think, well, that's that's the excitement of archaeology. Um, yeah. You know, with, with scientific advances, there's more and more we're able to learn all the time. And we've been really fortunate in our department. We've got a massive um, three million pound grant from AHRC and that um, has given us a whole range of new equipment. So we'll be able to undertake, you know, chemical analysis of metal objects, lots of different sort of isotopic analyses, you know, that tell us about diet and the date of, of people in the past and wh whether they were local or non-local to an area. Um, and, you know, in my department, there's a lot of colleagues are paleocologists or physical geographers and they would be interested in climate change and they mm -hmm. can give like deep time perspectives. And again, all this new equipment is going to really help us to, to unravel, you know, climate change in the past. So take me back then, okay? Like, how do you go from going and seeing Takabuti in the Ulster Museum as a girl to ending up doing a PhD at Queen's on archaeology? Like, what was your PhD even about? Okay, so... So I went to Queen's and did my undergraduate degree there. Um, and I remember it because we would have shared classes in first year with um, geography students and I was friends with quite a number of them. And they all thought I was mad because I remember within a week thinking, this is it. I'm in the right place. <laughs> After having been a wee bit lost, yeah, 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 yeah. I, knew, I knew within a week and I was sitting there like it was um, our professor at the time was Professor Derek Simpson. And I was just like, I was hanging on his every word. I couldn't believe, you know, it was all about Stonehenge and Avebury. So I knew I was in the right field. And I um, in my undergraduate degree, I specialised in zoo archaeology, which is the study of animal bones. But um, I really enjoyed that. But I kind of thought, you know, I, I'm more interested in the people. Mm. So I decided I was going to go to England, do a master's in osteology. And I got the expertise then that I could use to come back and do my PhD. Class. So, um, so you asked what my PhD was. My PhD was actually in Russia. So right. um, <laughs> um, I was really fortunate that a lot of things kind of came together. And my PhD supervisor, Professor Jim Mallory, he encouraged me to go out to Russia. Oh, you mean it was like in Russia? Yes. So I, I spent, well, it was, so it was. I mean, I spent probably about a year yeah, during yeah, the PhD yeah. living in St. Petersburg, which is just an, an amazing Crazy. place. 
um, and I worked with um, my dear colleagues in the Kunstkamera Museum, so Professor Yuri Chistov and Dr. Slava Moisiev and, and people like that who are still really good friends of mine. Um, and I looked at about a thousand people from the, the Scythian and the Xiongnu period from South Siberia. So this, these were just incredible nomadic people. Um, so, so yes, yeah, so that sort of started me off looking at these large populations and trying to reconstruct what life was like, you know. And you know, the, these people would have been quite warfaring. So you, you did, I did get like early evidence of scalping, and like they had these kind of ice pick type axes, and you find the, the holes in the skulls that that, that had happened. But it, it also got me thinking a lot about disability and how people with physical impairments were treated because. Okay, Herodotus talks about all these warfaring things, but then I was finding people, you know, with severely twisted spines mm. or club feet, you know, or, you know, facial deformities. And they would have had these conditions since birth. And they'd obviously been looked after and cared for, you know, because these people were nomads. They'd have had to be lifted in and out of wagons and moving around the steplands. So um, it just got me thinking, you know, people maybe are found the kind of the violence aspects sort of that's you know, one of the early archaeological textbooks would talk about violence quite a lot and warfaring and all that. But I loved being able to find, you know, other sides to these the people. The humanity. The humanity and being mm. able to, you know, look beyond what people like Herodotus was saying and actually then look at the real people, mm. you know. So, yeah. Absolutely. And it's crazy, you know, even if you look at our own doorstep here, like we kind of, we, we joked about potatoes at the start, how... You know, it's so easy for us in 2022 to not put faces and stories and humanity to, you know, the historical people right here on our doorstep, like including the famine, you know, which uh, was really crazy. And I know you've you've done a project uh, around that. Absolutely. At the moment, we're sort of in this, the 175th sort of anniversary of the Great Famine in Ireland. Um, so we wanted to commemorate this because it's a big landmark occasion. And, you know, on Gort Moor, uh, the Great Famine is one of those defining moments in Irish history. And it really changed the island, you know, economically, socially and even culturally because there were so many people died and such mass emigration. You know, that's why we've got so many Irish, you know, all yeah, around the world. Half you know? America is Irish. <laughs> exactly. But... Um, do you know, it would have been a really grim time. So we, we thought it definitely needed to be remembered. I can't believe it's only 175 years ago. I know, that's nothing. That kind of shook it. me, you saying that. Because, you know, I obviously studied the famine and know a good bit about the famine. Mm -hmm. 175 years is not a long time. No, that's not. Um, but, you know, a lot of information about the famine has been forgotten because I think people were so traumatised, you know, and that's something wow. you do find that... Um, if a generation has been traumatised, they sort of push push things out of their mind, you know, so they look forward and try to get on with their lives. Well, it's a little bit like how, say, for example, my grandparents, I was born in the 90s, mm -hmm. would maybe be hesitant to talk about aspects of the trouble, mm -hmm. of the trouble, sorry, because it was such recent history for them, yeah. you know. Well, that's it. It, it could be uncomfortable mm. discussions. But um, so we, we had sort of in uh, 2020, we'd wanted to do a couple of projects to commemorate the famine. So the first was... Great um, year for it. <laughs> I know. Well, you see, this is where it all went a bit horribly wrong, you know, because obviously COVID struck. So we'd been planning to go out and plant potatoes and we'd been planning to do an excavation of a famine road. So they all had to go on hold. But in terms of our excavation, we were able to get out last summer. So that was 20, 2021. And uh, we decided we were going to go and excavate a famine road mm -hmm. in Bow in County Fermanagh. So... 
we chose Fermanagh because it's an it's an it's where I grew up, so it's an area very very special to me. But also, there's a lot of information about famine roads in this particular area. So we um, we spoke to uh, Mr. Sean McLaughlin, who's a very very nice landowner, and. Uh, because we knew there was like a wonderful stretch of a famine road on his land and he, him and his family were very supportive and gave us the permission we needed. So we took um, a group of students from Queen's and um, staff then from our Centre for Community Archaeology and we went down last August for a week to excavate this famine road. So I should say famine roads, um, there were basically a public work scheme okay. put in place. Uh, in Fermanagh, we know that it was a very short-lived thing. It, it happened between, um, I think it was October 1846 and then June 1847. So, you know, we know the years, we know the precise months when these schemes were in operation. Um, and basically, the government didn't want to give the poor food for nothing. Mm-hmm. So they decided, right, we'll get them to work for their, their food. Now, you can imagine, bad idea. You've got people who were starved, full of, you know, diseases brought yeah. on by hunger, and they weren't going to be in any fit state to go out and build a road. But anyway, the government at the time thought this was a great idea and then they introduced these schemes all across the island. But like I say, we focused in in uh, sort of the Bow area, Bow Derrigonley area in Fermanagh. Um, now, we we kind of, we knew from the government records that they had a very strict plan to how these roads would look. So they, they could be either um, 21 feet across or 24 feet, so that's about seven metres across. And they could have then like little fences at either side or some of the bigger ones like little footpaths. So we kind of set out to um, just see, did the, did the engineers on the ground, um, so it would have been a guy called Roderick Gray in this part of Fermanagh, did they follow that exact plan? Um, we've got quite a lot of accounts as well that tell us about conditions on the roads and they sounded really grim. So, um, you know, you, you had people had to arrive at work at 6 and they worked 6am and worked till 6pm and Oof. they had... So a long day with one hour of a break. Um, and if they didn't arrive at 6am, they got a quarter of their pay for the day docked. If they didn't arrive at 9am, they got half docked. And if they, if they arrived later than that, that was it. You didn't get paid. And because people were so desperate, you've got these awful accounts, you know, of people basically standing around the edges, kind of waiting for somebody to die. Yeah. So that they could then take their place. And you've got accounts, you know, which make it sound quite cruel, the regime, you know, people being whipped if they weren't working hard enough. Oh, wow. So you can imagine like these starving people, you know, being whipped, trying to move, you know, loads of clay and mud and um, stones. It would have just been horrific. <laughs> it's like the Prince of Egypt, flip me. I know, it's re- really grim. Um, so that was kind of the, the context. So so we set up, we, did, we, we opened up our trench and we found that the road hadn't been completed. So there was just a clay layer that hadn't even got round as far as putting the stone cap on top. So that was a bit of a surprise. So mm-hmm. it just maybe is an indicator that the scheme ended very abruptly. And we also found no artefacts. And that's a real shocker <laughs> for, <a> shame. <laughs> for archaeology because normally we would find... Something. It's rubbish. We, we, we find the rubbish yeah. that people threw away. And that to us is, is gold, you know. Yeah. Um, and I was in my mind expecting, you know, there might be the odd clay pipe, you know, for mm-hmm. people smoking on the roads, you know, and or maybe, you know, evidence of food or mm-hmm. the odd animal bone or something. But to find nothing. And I think that really was a real stark indicator to us that this was horrific and that people had nothing to yeah. throw away. Um, one of the things as well, we, we, we knew we knew about this this amazing stretch of road in the field and we really wanted the community in, in Bow to to sort of pay it attention, you know, and and think about it, you know, because they've got this really precious 
memorial in their landscape and we were really really delighted with the community response you know we had lots of volunteers coming out to work on the excavation oh, wow. which is it's lovely because that's awesome yeah. you know it, it's their archaeology you know it's mine as well because i'm from yeah, yeah, Havana, yeah. yeah. But, did, um, did you pay them in food or not what you're gonna <laughs> no, no they all did it for the goodness Incredible. of being part of What a of thing the... to do, though, like on, a, on an afternoon or a Saturday, you know. Oh, no, cool. it, was, it was amazing. Um, you know, we had young young people who were maybe aspiring archaeologists and then older people as well. Yes. And we just had a steady stream of people visiting. Um, there was one of the local historians, uh, Sister Adele Bannon. She told us a really interesting story when we were on the site. And because she, she, she just lived up the road. She grew up up the road. And she said, you know, when we were kids, we'd always run past this field because there was always like an eerie atmosphere. Ooh. And we kind of wondered, you know, is that folk memory? You know, yeah, the, the yeah, yeah. people have sort of, they knew there was something in the field, maybe not necessarily remembered exactly what it was, but yeah. they knew it was somewhere where it was a place of sorrow and something terrible happened. Um, so we thought that was quite interesting, you know, how that wee story had kind of percolated mm. across time. Folk memory is so fascinating, isn't it? It is. Really. Uh, you know, we talked about this on a, another show recently where, you know, they maybe didn't even have the the scientific background to understand why certain things happened, like mm-hmm. certain diseases or certain catastrophes. So the storytelling engine of the human brain was how they would pass on pieces of advice and kind of keep people mm-hmm. in check and create boundaries. It's really, really cool. Oh, absolutely. And and I think f- folklore and folk practices and traditions and all, they're so important to keep, to keep alive, you know, to yeah. help us understand the past. Because, you know, as archaeologists, we can find things, you know, and sites and you know, remains of, of people and different, diff- a lot of different material things. But um, whenever you've got those stories, it can really, you know, help us to make sense mm. of what we find. Um, I heard something gorgeous recently. And it said something like, storytellers use lies to tell the truth. Oh, yeah. And I thought <laughs> That's that was a good was, way of thinking about that it. That was very cool. The quote went on to say, politicians use the truth to tell lies, but we'll not get into that. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, so it was a really, really re- rewarding experience for the whole team. That's um, cool. And we ended, we ended on the on the last evening. We had like an interdenominational service. So we had um, Father Seamus Quinn, Sister Dale, and um, the Reverend Samson Ajuka. They came and they said a few words on the site, and you know, just just blessings and remembering the people who had died. And we thought that was really important um, because it. The famine just killed anybody who was poor. Mm. Didn't matter what your religion was, mm-hmm. um, and that sometimes you know gets forgotten. Yeah. So we we were we just really wanted that message to be kind of remembered, mm-hmm. you know. So I mean, this this is kind of opens up an interesting angle, I suppose. Why do you think it's important that we remember those people? Okay, so go back to that community. What do you say, Boho and Fermanagh? Bo. Bo no, not Boho. <laughs> that's, it's like Soho, you Boho. No, no, it's Bo. That's the, the classic mistake. <laughs> Bo and Fermanagh. Uh-huh. You know, so let's say, you know, I have a wee house in Bo. You know, I've got a couple of kids and I'm sitting there. You know, wh- how is that going to add value to my life? Or what will I gain from engaging in that sort of remembering and going down and, you know, ex- excavating the ground and all that sort of stuff? Well, I suppose, like, as I grew, I mean, I grew up in Fermanagh, so I the, the countryside was my playground. Yeah. You know, I was out meeting friends at bridges and playing on ancient monuments. And, and I have a really strong sense of place for where I grew up. You mm. know, I've been living, well, living and working sort of in the, 
in Belfast and Belfast hinterland, you know, for years. But I still see Fermanagh as my ho- my kind of home, you know. Yeah. Um, and I just think when people kind of understand, you know, the, the sites and monuments and the people that came before them and understand the, the countryside around them, they, it instills a really strong sense of place and a real pride in an area, you know. And some of the, the people who came to our site, you know, they were really pleased that we had decided to work in Bow because sometimes they feel a bit forgotten. You sure. know, these rural communities, they don't really... I mean, we obviously, we all think they're incredible and the countryside is just beautiful and, you know, all the farming communities is so important. They're, they're so, the heart of Ireland in many ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it was just, I think they just enjoyed the fact that, you know, archaeologists came out and, and gave some attention to their area and... and you know, physically demonstrated that this is a really important site in a really mm-hmm. beautiful and important landscape. And we even had um, like a crowd come over from the Digging for Britain, Britain um, documentary and it has um, wow. Alice Roberts. So um, again, you know, we're, we're telling the story of the famine and the story of, you know, the people of Bow mm. um, to a kind of a wider audience. So, so yeah, so that was kind of, we we thought that was really important, and and you know when archaeologists come into an area, you know there is that sense of excitement. You know you can't yeah, yeah, yeah. help get away from the whole Indiana Jones. You know everyone loves, you know the the mystery absolutely, and and the thrill of what we're going to find. Now, you know some might say, well, you didn't really find very much at the Famine mm-hmm. Road, but to us that really told the story of that particular road. You know, and whenever you can use the kind of historical sources and the the, the local folklore, mm-hmm. you know we we've learned a huge amount. From that one excavation that took place over a week last summer. I think it's really interesting to hear how, you know, you're showing up at a site that to the naked eye looks like there's hardly anything going on. Mm-hmm. But then I almost I almost picture like in your mind's eye, like you start stacking all these extra layers on top. You know, you've got the historical accounts, like you said, which I assume could be things like a journal or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you're you're just adding all these layers on top of it. To the point where you're showing up on site on this road and you almost have like this 3D picture of what's going on. You're trying to bring as much life mm-hmm. and data to that as possible to kind of create like a full picture. I guess in some ways to kind of like create a time machine to go back and try to understand what was happening. No, absolutely. And, do you know, that's one of the things I, I suppose that's one of the things that really appeals to me about archaeology, because in school I was one of these kids, you know. I did art and biology and chemistry for my A-levels because I was kind of, I liked whole, I liked, every, you know, everything. I didn't really feel I was a scientist or an arts person. Yeah. Um, although I did end up going to art college for a year and then deciding it wasn't for me and got into archaeology. <laughs> but I really like the way we kind of take lots of different techniques and approaches from mm. other disciplines and we kind of bring them all together under archaeology and then apply them to questions of the past because I think it gives us a really you know, unique way of looking at questions, you know, and we're not afraid to kind of borrow from sort of documentary sources or stable isotopes or DNA, you know, anything that we think is going to be useful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we'll use it. It's interesting even like, you know, I think you just round off your A-levels there. Like, they're pretty important components of like your day-to-day job. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, like you, you kind of almost had like that multidisciplinary nature baked into... Your your character growing up, you know, yeah, that's think, cool. I think 
you're right. Actually, I hadn't actually thought about it. That time, <laughs> you know, that's, that's, you've taught me something. I'll bill you at the end. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're dead right. Because um, sometimes, you know, people think if you're going to study archaeology, you must have history A level. Yeah. But, but that, I mean, I, I'm an example where that's not the case. And yeah. a lot of my colleagues would be similar, you know. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think we, we definitely always strive to use a multidisciplinary approach mm. in our questions of the past about people in the past and you know and that's to me what archaeology is all about it's the people you know yeah. we, like I said we look at the remains of what they left behind but um, I mean my main sort of area of work is in bioarchaeology so that's looking at ancient human remains so I would um, mostly look at skeletons mm -hmm. you know and there's obviously ethical issues to this line of work but you know we wouldn't we um the, the, the remains that we would be studying are usually excavated because there's going to be like a modern development. So it's usually a road scheme. And invariably, you know, there's been a lot of sort of thought behind the scenes and, you know, legislation enacted. And the goods of the needs of the living are kind of decided that they outweigh the, the you know, the, the good that of the is dead. That is ethical you know? I've never once thought about in my life. Wow. So I think, you know... I think because I'm working in the in this this area, yeah. I do think about it a lot, you know. And you know, as archaeologists, we're extremely privileged to be able to, you know, actually work with the remains of the dead, yeah, you know, the yeah, remains yeah. of our ancestors. Um, so we do have a lot of, you know, different rules and regulations and legislation Isn't and it's ethical. It's so crazy that like codes. you're sitting there with the skeleton, and it literally was someone that was walking around, like your your great 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 mm -hmm. like nephew or something. You know what I mean? Like our our uncle. Sorry. Like, it, this person was alive, like you and I are right now, you know, and had conversations like this. And abs and that is the critical <laughs> thing to remember. You know, I, I mean, and, and I do every skeleton that I study. Whoa. I'm thinking about that person. And, you know, obviously, when we look at a skeleton, we're reconstructing, you know, is it an adult or a child? You know, is it a man or a woman? Mm -hmm. What age were they when they died? What diseases did they have? What injuries may they have suffered from? But I'm always thinking that was a person, yeah. you know, and there's there's times when you come across a skeleton who's maybe, you know, of a child the same age as one of your own kids, you mm -hmm. know, and, and you do have to kind of imagine what what would it have been like for the family, you know, losing that child. So I, I think it's very important to keep the humanity in archaeology. Yeah. And, uh, you know, w one of the areas that I'm interested in is looking at burial practices, because then you can really get glimpses of the living and glimpses of emotion you know, because it was the living who buried the dead and, and laid them out in their graves. Um, you know, and we sometimes find like little kids are, are laid out in their sides or they've got like a little pillow stone, you know, and, and I think their wow. families were trying to make them look like they were sleeping. Yeah. You know, so it's not like the formal position that was more commonly used for adults. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, you might find like little bits of quartz inside a burial. So it's like a nice white shiny stone that we'd see on modern graves today. Mm. And again, you know, I can just imagine, you know, sorrowing families yeah. putting these little stones in, these little symbols, you know, of their kind of love and even little holy, you know, little kind of little religious items to maybe sort of help the person in the afterlife, you know. Absolutely. So, um so that, that for me, really enriches, you know, the scientific study of skeletons is remembering the humanity and bring it, looking for the emotions, Yeah, you know. It's really interesting. I mean, this is a very, very, very obvious observation. It just kind of struck me there that, like, you know, whenever you die, your body remains at that age. Mm -hmm. That's it's so. I don't know why it's, a, it's freaking me out right now, but I'm like, wow, like, if you die a child, your body remains a yeah. child. And that, it kind of, you're, you're locked in. 
mm-hmm. to that piece of history. And that, that tells a story that can be told for, you know, in a hundred years time. What's the oldest skeleton you've studied? Or how long could do skeletons viably last for them to be of use to you? I suppose they're always of use. Yeah, I mean, let me think. So I suppose, um, like, because... Yeah, I suppose within Ireland, like we, our earliest people would be about 10,000 10, or so years ago. So it's the Mesolithic. Wow. Um, but we don't, we've only got like a um, couple of bones from that era, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so it's when we move into the Neolithic. So that's when we get all our lovely megalithic tombs that are dotted around the, the countryside in places like Newgrange. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when you start to get, you know, much more um, skeletal remains, the bones <laughs> preserve. But within megalithic tombs, they're quite often... Um, kind of jumbled up collections of bones, you know, and um, I've actually, one of my students, Lisa White, she, for her PhD, she's actually studying a site called Millen Bay, which is over in County Down. Um, and in in the 50s, they excavated inside the tomb and they found a whole collection of disarticulated, so, so just jumbled up bits and pieces of bones. But, um, and they've been then stored in the Ulster Museum for years but whenever we started looking more closely at these bones, it all they had lots and lots of cut marks on them. Mm. So that tells us, you know, that the people, their bodies were being processed, you know, and sort of maybe their skin taken off and maybe they were cut up and then bits of bone, bits of the bodies being put into the tomb. So she's looking at this in more detail and trying to work out, you know, which, you know, trying to map the patterns of cut marks and then trying to sort of work out, you know, why were they doing this? Mm. And who might have been getting buried in this amazing, you know, megalithic tomb? Um, so that would be sort of a, a Neolithic person and a project that I was involved in that, that sort of hit the headlines a couple of years ago um, involved the geneticists down in Trinity College Dublin. So it was Professor Dan Bradley and Dr. Lara Cassidy. And um, it was looking at sort of genetic connections between Neolithic people, but they actually um, found, had a piece of bone from inside Newgrange. Okay. Which I don't know if you've ever visited that site. It's it's Oh, it's an incredible passage tomb down in County Meath. It's like one of our premier sites and, you know, it's always billed as being older than the pyramids and it's <laughs> really spectacular. Um, and it would have taken, you know, a lot of effort to actually construct. So it needed to be, needed to be created by somebody who had the resources. But it's really, uh, I'm probably getting jumbled up. Is this the one that the sun Yes, comes no, absolutely. It's got the light certain, box. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that would be on the 21st of December. So the midwinter kind of solstice, the sun comes comes through the box and um, hits the very back of the tomb. So imagine the planning to My be able goodness. to create some, you know, a, an engineering feat to be able to make that. So precise. That work. Absolutely. You know, and, you know, we do sometimes, I think people don't appreciate the skills of our ancestors, you know, and they're their intellect and their engineering capabilities and, and different things. Well, this is something that I actually wanted to talk about. I, I, I've been trying to figure out how I want to phrase this, but it's almost like a, like a generational snobbery yeah. where we look down at people from the past as like, oh, weren't they so simple and primitive? You know, and, and we we throw so much of their beliefs and their practices out. You know, we throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. And it's kind of interesting because in a lot of ways, I'm like... Yeah, but I feel like they were doing a lot of things better than we currently are today. No, absolutely. I mean, I'm even, I'm just sitting here thinking about that and thinking about, you know, like me and um, like my husband, Colm, you know, our ability to use digital technology, you know, compared to our kids and they're kind of laughing sometimes (laughs) at our (laughs) inability to use it. But um, yeah, but, but as we talked about, 
you know, people in the past were extremely resourceful. They were mm. able to survive from the land. Yeah. Whereas I don't think we could. We can try our best to grow our vegetables and have our wee hens and things. But well, even a you like know, you know a bona fide farmer, I think, would struggle. Yeah, without the modern yeah. technologies. Now, obviously, these technologies have advanced to make things easier. But does that mean that we're less resourceful and less yeah. capable? Yeah. Do you know? Because um, even. You know, people reading books on tablets as opposed to reading a book. Mm-hmm. What happens? I always say to my kids, you know, what happens if there's like a disaster and electricity goes and we're, we're left here? You're going to yeah. have to read a book to entertain yourself. Yeah, yeah. You know? or you know, you, you've bought 140 books on your Kindle, uh-huh. and for some strange reason, I don't know, they get deleted. Yeah. <laughs> uh, say goodbye to your 140 books. Do you Absolutely. know what I mean? Like, how are you going to pass those books down to the next generation? You can't even transfer that book to a family member. You. Yeah. You buy the license to that book. You don't actually buy the book. You don't own anything. You own a copy of it, but yeah. you can't even donate that copy to your library. Do you know what I mean? So we've moved from this very physical world that you have spent your career digging up to try to find stories about. What will it be like in a thousand years' time oh, if, no. if, if archaeologists don't have access to our digital clouds, which they probably won't? No. You know, I talk about this all the time. Uh, if I give you a floppy disk... Uh-huh. Right now, like you're going to have to go to a lot of effort to to extract that data from it or VHS, oh, no. you know, and, you know, we all like, I don't know about you, but like my laptop doesn't even have a CD drive anymore. I know. I know it's just made all that information trapped in these little disks redundant. So it'd be interesting to see like what sort of what what remains are left in a thousand years time from this era, you know, crazy. I know. I know it's it's. Yeah, I suppose even in terms of burial practices, like I sometimes get, you know, talk to my students about, you know, like there's so many, I know it hasn't quite happened here yet, but there's so much talk about the green ways of green funerals and, you know, um, like corpse composting and, Mm. um, you know, sort of is a Promethean is where, you know, the corpse is sort of liquefied, you know, so getting rid of the body as much as possible, you know, as opposed to burial. Yeah. So you know, there's going to be very few skeletal remains potentially yeah, for yeah, yeah. archaeologists yeah. in the future. And, you know, I mean, we do find cremated remains in the past. So like in the early Bronze Age, a lot of the, rem- the burials would have been cremated. Um, but I suppose it's becoming more and more common, you know, in the modern world. Um, and you can still get lots of information from a cremated deposit, mm-hmm. but it's just not quite to the same level as from an unburned body. Yeah. Um, and just even like one of, one of my areas of interest is looking at, you know, grave memorials, you know, like in places like the city cemetery, which is incredible. Um, But there's so much pressure now for space. And, you know, in those old cemeteries, people could have memorials, whatever way they wanted, you know, these beautiful classic memorials or even like a pyramid or an obelisk or whatever. But now it's all very sort of, it's formulaic, you know, and and more and more cemeteries want like a little plaque on the ground that you can lawn more, you know. Mm. So all these kind of, these, these things that um, are from the past, are, I think, are kind of fizzling out. And I just wonder what it's going to be like in the you, future. You ever heard the term, uh, oh, come on, Matthew, wabi-sabi? No. Okay, so <laughs> wabi-sabi is, let's imagine you've got four mugs in your cupboard uh-huh. that you, I was going to say handmade, right? So you took the clay and you, I don't know, whatever you do, you sculpted it and then you fired mm-hmm. it. Uh, and, you know, even if you followed like the same sort of design, every mug is going to be slightly different. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Versus you buy four mugs from Ikea and there's like a million of them just like it all around the world. They don't mean anything. And I, th- I think like as we move forward, 
everything's getting a little bit less wabi-sabi. So that's what wabi-sabi yeah. is. Those little distinct yeah. differences that come from kind of that human interaction yeah. with the material. And, you know, everything's just become so uniform down to the gravestones. I've never thought about that yeah. before. It's you're, Yeah, you're, you're making me think about a lot of things here. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose, I mean, thankfully, like, in some of the, the cemeteries you go to, like, there is great individualization in gravestones, yeah. you know, and people are putting their own spin. So it's almost like they're going back to the Victorian era, but putting a modern slant on it. Yeah. And you can see that in, in the city cemetery as well, where the old graves are kind of almost being replicated in modern style in some of the new graves. Um, I want to go back to, you know, you talked about the, the corpse of the child lying on the pillow mm-hmm. and the little quartz stones, little white stones, and the religious emblems that kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, help them pass through whatever was waiting for them mm-hmm. when they died. Were you talking about that locally? Yeah, so, I mean... Because it's in my head, obviously, I go to the tombs of the pharaohs in, in, in Egypt. Uh-huh. But what can you tell us about some of the, the beliefs or the, the rituals or the traditions around burials here? Yeah, so, I mean, that, for example, would be a typical kind of finding in an early medieval or a medieval cemetery here. So, um, you know, we, we some of the cemeteries that are excavated are very are large because of these big road developments. So um, the one I mentioned was Ballyhanna in County Donegal. So it had about 1,300 people buried in it. So quite a small area, but sort of, um, you know, over time it kind of built up the, mm-hmm. the burial ground. So... So you would find, you know, evidence like like I was talking about with the children, you know, having particular sort of burial positions. Um, you find lots of evidence for diseases, so mm. diseases like tuberculosis and, you know, people with severe severe injuries. So there was one man, um, he'd had this terrible injury. He must have, it's the sort of injury you would get from a modern car crash. So if, if we think back to what would have been available to him, you know, maybe he fell at speed from a horse or from like a cart or something. Um, but basically his femur, so that's his thigh bone, um, had been dislocated at the hip and kind of burst through into his pelvis oh, and was sort of yeah, locked yeah. there. So it would, and then his, his leg would have been sort of at, fixed at right angles from his hip, you know, in fr- out in front of My him and, and at right angles at his knee. But, you know, for him to be able to survive an injury like that, you know, he probably would have been, you know, bedridden for about three months. So yeah. every need... He would have, you know, everything he needed to survive would have had to be given to him by other people. Yeah. Um, and again, this goes back to the idea of close-knit communities. You know, who was going to bring him food? Who was going to attend to his toileting mm. and keeping him clean and making sure he didn't get bed sores and making sure he didn't get infections? You know, there must have been a group of primary caregivers, mm-hmm. you know, and and eventually, even when he did sort of regain mobility, it would have been quite limited, you know, and you had to maybe use crutches um, and he wouldn't have been a fully functioning adult male anymore in terms of being able to go out and harvest or herd animals. Yeah, and he's and he's not getting sick pay. No, absolutely you know, not. The, the whole family has <laughs> lost a huge salary, you know, potentially absolutely. their livelihood. So there's so many factors so there. But but for him to be able to survive, you know, and because we can see in the in the, the nature of the lesions on the bones that they weren't fresh, that were that he'd lived, you know, for probably quite a long time after. Wow. Um, the, that support must have been there, and it's again going back to this idea of. You know, there people are people. They're mm-hmm. not too different to ourselves. And if somebody you love has been injured, you're going to do your best to look after them, mm-hmm. um, regardless of your resources. So, 
you just do the best with what you've got. Yeah. And that's something I see a lot in the, the skeletons we study, you know, that people did try to look after each other and people did survive some pretty horrific injuries and diseases. And then you'd see like these little special things in their graves, like maybe being positioned in a way that's kind of reminiscent of like a prayer position. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if so, some people I've seen with tuberculosis are buried almost like they're kneeling, you know, or their hands are in prayer. And I think it's all very, it's all very deliberate. Yeah. You know, on the part of the living. Absolutely. This might be an impossible question. I don't know because I've got no context for it. If you were to look at my skeleton uh -huh. and compare it with an exact perfect clone of myself that lived in the medieval period or around then, what differences would you see between my skeleton and other Matthew's skeleton? Ooh, that's a tricky one. Okay, so I would be putting you into the 18 to 35 young adult category. A young adult, I love that. Go yeah, ahead. so you're a young adult. <laughs> um, you're, you, I would be looking at your skull and your pelvis and then be able to say you're a male. So that would be your kind of like biological profile. And then in a person, Matthew, medieval Matthew, shall we say. Ooh, I like that. M&M. You know, <laughs> I would expect you'd probably have what's called Schmorl's nodes in your spine. So this is when the, there's pressure put in the disc. And it um, causes kind of these cavities in, in the vertebrae. Okay. And that's caused by very hard work. Backbreaking work. Backbreaking work, yep. Okay. And we see that a lot in our young adults and, and, and just shows us that people from teenagers, you know, yeah. adolescents were engaging in heavy physical labor. Um, you probably wouldn't have beautiful white pearl, pearly teeth. <laughs> You'd probably have pretty bad teeth full of caries, you know, cavities. Mm. Um You'd probably have lots of plaque sticking to your teeth, which is a bit not nice. I mean, you haven't seen my teeth. So. Abscess as well. <laughs> um, they look pretty good from here. I'm imagining them as well. Um, abscesses. Um, you might have had the odd broken bone, you know, because of all the work you had to do. And, you know, we can see sort of different patterns of injuries in, in men and women, you know, which seems to be connected to the, the chores they would have done on a habitual basis. Um, so, like, a lot of women seem to have broken fingers and toe bones, you know, and it might be to do with more kind of finer domestic chores because mm -hmm. the sort of the the different um, early medieval tracts kind of indicate that women spent a lot a lot of their work was around the, the sort of the homestead, you know, and the domestic life, whereas men would have been more likely to go out and be, you know, out in the fields or mm -hmm. out doing construction projects. So, um, so yes, so things like that, and you probably would have been barefooted, you know, so you might have had infection in your lower legs, Um could have picked up tuberculosis, which is pretty nasty, and you'd be then quite emaciated and um, spitting up blood and coughing, and things would not be good for your future. I want to go back to the feet. <laughs> would my toes be different? Because I'm wearing quite tight trainers here, and I kind of almost feel them, you know, my toes bunching together, but I just have like big hobbit feet in my head, if I'm picturing medieval Matthew. Well, I suppose... Your feet wouldn't have been constrained. It could actually be that medieval Matthew's feet are more natural because they're they're yeah. just able to be loose, you know. Yeah. But um, but then they would have been more exposed, exposed to injuries, yeah, you know, yeah. and infections and different things. Um, but we do sometimes find bunions, you know, in people in the past. So you know that is suggestive of some sort of foot constraints. Mm -hmm. Um. So yeah. So that's crazy. That's an interesting. An interesting observation. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I love that. Completely off the cuff as well. I, I appreciate that. I kind of want to go back to, 
you know, we've we've kind of danced around it a couple of times so far. Let's go back to medieval Matthew. You know, what are some areas of his life you think that with a broad brush would be stronger than a modern Matthew walking around today? So don't worry about making it personally about me. Well, what areas of his life do you think actually they're doing a better job than we are in the modern world? Um, well, that's a really tricky question. I suppose, you know, I think even from like my grandparents' generation, I mm-hmm. think our society is now quite detached. You know, we don't, we're, we're sort of all living our lives and not everybody has like intergenerational support. Yeah. Whereas medieval Matthew would have probably lived in quite a tightened community. He would have been, you know, okay, biologically we call him a young adult, but mm. he would have been, you know, an adult. He'd have been a grown up and, sure. and one of the guys who would have had responsibility in the community. Um, so I, you get a sense that people in medieval times, they ha- for, for survival, they all had to really stick together yeah. and provide support. Whereas I suppose in the, in the modern world, things are easier in some senses, but... Maybe people don't have the the same level of support. I'm just I'm just had. thinking as you're speaking, the image I had in my head was like medieval Matthew walking out to the field or whatever, uh-huh. and doing so knowing that he had to make money for his wife, his kids, but also the granny and granda yeah. that lived in the house as well, and maybe even a few of these foster kids that were floating around in the mix as well. So it's yeah. it's a completely different story than just like oh Matthew and his little nuclear yeah. family, you know. No, absolutely. But then if if you again think about it in modern terms, like if you have like other if you're if you're living with, you know, say unmarried sister or brother Mm -hmm. or something Mm -hmm. or grandparents, if they're still alive, like you have a built in support network for children, you know, so. Yeah, you don't need to pay for childcare because childcare is right in the house. Yeah. So things like that. And, you know, like. I don't know, like our world has so many mental health problems, you know, we don't know what mental health would have been like in the past, but is it that tighter knit communities, I don't know, would it, would they felt more like they belonged? I I I don't don't know. I I don't know the, uh, the logic that went into this, but I I did read a study recently that said that in the American Amish community, Mm -hmm. the rates of depression were 10 times lower. Okay. And they obviously live quite an agrarian, tight-knit community. Mm -hmm. And then how they figured this next bit out is is beyond my ability. Mm -hmm. But they kind of proposed that in hunter-gatherer communities that the rates of depression were 100 times less than they are today. I wonder how they figured that out. I wonder how they figured that out. But their kind of overall hypothesis was the community, but also the being outdoors, using your body Mm -hmm. a lot, the types of food that they would have eaten, which are obviously kind of flipped on its head to where we are today it's interesting well i mean you're just you're saying about you know archaeology and being outdoors so that's one of the things our center for community archaeology um you know we're very keen to sort of promote the well-being aspects of being involved in archaeological projects Mm -hmm. you know and that's why we 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 go out you know and we've worked with a lot of you know um like heritage lottery funded landscape partnerships and done you know excavations out in different communities across northern ireland um and it's great people always say you know, like heritage volunteers are tend to have very high levels of satisfaction and happiness because Interesting. they've enjoyed being out, you know, outdoors, but then they're also using their mind at the yeah. same time and thinking and exploring and discovering. Now, do you mean so that that data point of that feeling of satisfaction 
Are you saying overall in their life they're more satisfied or for this no, three R's? Apparently, um, overall, you know, people who kind of more regularly get So involved. that's interesting. So what do you think is different about those who are heritage-minded and orientated? Like what type of people makes them more satisfied than, say, modern Matthew? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think it's, it's more... Um, People find it rewarding to be involved in, you know, an excavation because you yeah. know because it, it helps mental health, it helps physical aspects as well. Yeah. And um, I think if they've enjoyed an experience like that, they're more likely to to go back and get mm-hmm. involved. You know, I think I've got a more specific question for you. You touched on this at the start. Okay, a sense of place. Yes. Do you think that having a sense of place is pro- like more important than we maybe give it credit for in like today's world i think so i think people like to feel like they belong somewhere Mm. you know and that they they understand the landscape around them and they have memories and can connect and and that's not to say people going into an area and newcomers into an area can't create their own sense of space you know and a lot of you know it's it's not always just like people who've grown up in a place that are interested in what's happened there you know anybody can can want to find out more um, because I suppose it gives them a sense of value to where you live mm-hmm. and a sense of pride, you know. Um, so I think it's all kind of, it comes together. But I think, you know, being outdoors is obviously, we all know that that's really good for us. But when you add in these other layers of discovery, it makes, it enriches it. You and know? the community that goes along with it. Absolutely. You're, hit, you're hitting a lot of the key <laughs> pillars here. It's good. It's a good ad well, for getting involved. I suppose archaeology, you know, it, it's quite a small community, you know, in Northern Ireland, you know, yeah. in a sense. And like our students in Queens, like they, they build, because it's a, a fairly small number, you know, in a degree course, they build an amazing community, you know, and um, we're always very keen to get them involved in our projects and they create their own projects, you know, and Archaeology Society go out on all their trips and different things. Um so I suppose, like, you know, as professionals, we're, we're very high on, big on community. And then we bring that into our projects and then communities get involved. So you've got all these different kind of communities merging and it's, it's a lovely experience, you know. Wow. Very, very cool. I, kind of on that note then, like, one of the questions we often ask as part of the series is, um, maybe it's it's an impossible question or it's hard to kind of narrow it down to one, but what would you say is your most proudest moment or achievement or finding or piece of research or w- whatever initiative that you have had the chance to be a part of during your time at Queen's? Um, okay, right, okay. So I'll, I'll talk about my, my discovery first and then I'll... Um, talk about what I'm proudest of. So in terms of archaeological discoveries, um, I suppose the, the 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 moment that stands out for me was actually discovering a case of leprosy, which probably sounds really weird <laughs> because whenever people ask me, you know, what's the most exciting thing you find, they're expecting me to talk about gold or yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But for me, because... Um, I, I, as a master student, I was really intrigued to hear that, you know, leprosy was in Europe, Northwest Europe. It was an epi- epidemic sort of disease or endemic disease at that time. So I was kind of wondering why we didn't have any in Ireland, any mm. cases. So when I was doing my PhD, I took a break to go and work on an excavation at Armoy up in County Antrim inside St. Patrick's Church. And um, we found a case of leprosy. So it was just a pair of feet preserved. And then that, that sort of brought Ireland into the story of leprosy. Wow. 
So, um, you know, and we all know it's a totally horrific disease. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was sort of, it was a bit of a puzzle why it wasn't here. So that was my kind of, for me, the most interesting discovery. Yeah, for sure. But I've had so many, you know, I've been so fortunate and blessed in, in my career so far. Um, in terms of what makes me proudest, I just love seeing um, the students coming through the system, you know. So I teach the students in first year and then in third year. So I kind of like that I'm there at the very start of their degree <laughs> when they're all just wee new things in yeah, from yeah, 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 yeah. school or wherever they've come from before. Um, and it's amazing to see them grow and mature and become really confident in their archaeological abilities because, you know, when they come in, they're going to have been interested in archaeology, but because it's not subject offered in school, mm. it, they're all very, very new. And then in third year, they, they do my Society Death and Disease course. And, and I actually, a few weeks ago, had the last lecture for the current cohort. And, you know, it was... It, it's kind of, it's a bittersweet because you're really proud of them and they've made it to the end, but it's kind of sad to see them go on. Yeah. Um, I'm extremely proud of my PhD students as well because um, three of them have gone on to be lecturers themselves. Wow. And again, you know, you're you're seeing sort of people starting off projects, seeing it through and, and developing. Um, and I think that's one of the great privileges of working somewhere like Queen's University, Belfast. Um, you can you, you're very much part of seeing young people develop and, you know, helping them to sort of change into what they're going to be in, in their mm. careers. You know, and, and like I've been through it myself and I was very grateful to to my lecturers for helping to shape me as an archaeologist, you know, and, and I. I really enjoyed my time as a student in Queens, and and I mean all that traveling is is amazing. Like, what a thing to do at such a young age, you know. Well, that's it, you know, and I and I I think you know sometimes people think, oh, I'm not going to go to Queens because I want to to travel, you know. <laughs> but actually, I think you can go to Queens and you can travel the world. The world is your oyster. Um, we actually have. Uh, some amazing scholarships in the university so that's one of my roles which is it's a great role because you're you're <laughs> giving I'm people money <laughs> giving people money so I'm chair of our scholarships and awards group and I love it because it's a positive thing you're giving people money mm. to be able to fulfill their dreams and ambitions um, so we have a lot of bequests you know like the Sir Thomas Dixon bequest and the Sir Emily Montgomery and the Queen's Graduate Association and a lot of these are to do with excellence you know people are, are rewarded you know for for achieving really great um, academic results. But then a lot of them are tied into travel. So people can get to travel, you know, as part of their degrees mm. um, or even just to, to sort of get cultural experience that's going to enhance them, you know, in whatever their subject area is. Um, and I love being able to then read the reports about all their different adventures. And across the different across the different departments and schools in the university, you know, there are a lot of these these scholarships that maybe people aren't aware of, but they just they're just like an extra that helps people. Yeah. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so moving into the stock questions then, just to wrap okay. things up. And these are choose your own adventures. So take these way, whatever way you want. You can make it personal, you can make it professional, you can throw us a curveball, whatever you feel like. The first one is simply Eileen, out of everything so far, what would you describe as your most challenging moment and how were you able to overcome that, if you don't mind sharing? Um, gosh, I don't know, actually. Let me think. Um, I don't know. I enjoy the challenge, you yeah. know. I think... Um, I suppose 
I get excited about lots of different things, you know, and suppose for me, sometimes the challenge is to, to try to focus on mm. one particular thing. You know, I, I think I've been really fortunate to, to, in my career to be able to, you know, work on an amazing Egyptian mummy like Takabudi. I've had a PhD student who was looking at um, diseases and dinosaurs. So I've even got the chance to, <laughs> to kind of stray into paleontology. And um, I don't know, I suppose... Sometimes I've, it can be quite emotionally draining when you're looking at somebody, the skeletal remains of somebody who has obviously had a really horrific life, mm. you know, and I'm trying to tell their story. But, you know, I'm a scientist, obviously, but you're kind of wanting to make sure that the the human side and the experiences are still in there. So sometimes it can be a challenge to make sure that you're representing these people from the past in, a, in the right way, you know. Um, and I think especially when you're dealing with children, it can be very difficult. Actually, I suppose one of the challenging areas I work in, um, which we haven't talked about, is children's burial grounds or Kalini. I don't know if you've ever heard. Of, have you heard of these? No, no, no. So scattered across Ireland, there are thousands of little unconsecrated burial grounds. Um, and these are where the unbaptized babies would have been buried because they weren't allowed into consecrated ground Wow! because um, they weren't considered to be part of the Christian community. So they were excluded. Um, and I just think this would have been totally horrific because mm. if a baby died and it had been baptized, the parents would have had the comfort of knowing it was going to heaven, you know, and these people would have been very devout Absolutely. and totally believed, yeah. you know, um, what they were being told by their, by the church, by the Catholic church. Um, so if a baby was, the, if your parents, if the baby died before it was baptised and the parents were told it was destined for limbo, that must have been horrific. So I think it, these are very poignant sites. And again, you know, it is too hard to study the remains of these very young infants. But I think, again, it's important that their little voices are heard and, mm. and especially the voices of their families. Because what I found is that in these burial grounds, even though they were excluded from formal burial practice and they weren't allowed into the churchyards you can act, you find that basically they're buried in exactly the same way and you find evidence of quartz um, and so in some you even find like little toy figurines or little mm -hmm. dice and again I just think they're so imbued with emotion yeah. and that those families were really suffering but they were trying to make sure their little infants you know yeah. were as comfort, comfortable and maybe giving them toys so they wouldn't be bored in the afterlife in limbo mm -hmm. Um and a lot of these these um, unconsecrated burial grounds have now been blessed by priests, you know, especially around the turn of the millennium. And nice. kind of, it was almost like the wrong was righted. Yeah. But um, I think, yes, that's been a very challenging area to work in, but one that I think is really important. Yeah. I love that word, imbued. Imbued. I think that's a lovely, lovely word. Uh, if you could take anyone from Northern Ireland, dead or alive, it's really tough for you. God. Out for a cup of coffee. Who would you take? Where would you take them? And why? Hmm. Okay, so if... Well, they're actually... I was going to say one alive, one dead, but they're both dead, sadly. So in terms of a modern person, I think I would really like to go out for coffee with Seamus Heaney. Mm. Because, you know, Seamus Heaney, um, a lot of his poems... You know, they're very, there's a very strong sense of place in oh, his poetry. Massive. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, but he's also very interested in the past, you know, the more recent past, but also the, the deeper past, the archaeological past. And, um, you know, a lot of his poems feature archaeological, you know, monuments or 
discoveries. So for like, for example, one of my favourite monuments is the, the Janus figure in County Fermanagh and that features in Heaney's poem. So I think he'd be really interesting to get chatting to. Um, and we've, we've got our big European Association of Archaeology conference coming to Belfast next year. So it'll be like two and a half thousand archaeologists descending <laughs> on the city, which will Incredible. be very interesting because we like to party and socialise. <laughs> um, but we, we've we've actually got as our conference motto, weaving narratives. And we've got the, the Janus figure as as our sort of logo. Nice. And that's kind of hearkening to, you know, Belfast being part of, you know, Linenopolis and the weaving, but also it being, a, you know, a centre of great poetry and the works of people like Seamus Heaney. So I'd love to kind of get his his insight and do some advice for this EAA conference and what he, might, <laughs> what he would think about it and bringing poetry into it. In terms of a, a long dead person, I think I would bring the poor Armoy leprosy sufferer out because uh, I think they've had a really horrible life, yeah. you know, suffering from a disease that would have been really debilitating. And um, I think I would just want to be able to tell their story properly because mm. I've only been able to really talk about them in terms of the scientific and how their body would have been affected. So they're also quite a late case. So they were sort of 15th, 16th century, whereas at that time, leprosy would have been dying out. Um, and tuberculosis would have become a more prominent disease. So I do wonder, had they travelled somewhere or mm. how did they actually get the disease and how did they end up inside the church yeah. at Armoy? So they're, they would be really intriguing to talk to. Class. You know. Final question then, Eileen. Okay. If you could go back in time to an 18-year-old version of yourself <laughs> and you had a couple of minutes of 18-year-old Eileen's time, Mm-hmm. What sort of things would you say to her? Um, <laughs> what would I say? Stop chasing boys. <laughs> far too much time being interested. Um, I would just say, enjoy yourself and take seize every opportunity. Don't be fr- afraid, you know, because I think a lot of times we, we hold ourselves back, mm. you know, and especially I think girls, young women tend to, to not just go for things because they're worried about if it goes wrong. You know, life is full of, you know, we make mistakes, but they're rarely all that terrible and you might be embarrassed for a bit, but you get over it. Yeah. Um, and I just think, yeah, go for it, seize every opportunity. Obviously, the world we're living in now with COVID, it's, we're all sort of getting used to traveling again, but I think it's it's brilliant to be able to travel and to experience other cultures and, um, you know, to bring those experiences back home. Yeah. You know, because like I said, I'm a real home bird and I wanted to to stay in Northern Ireland and I'm so happy that I've been able to. Um, but I've enjoyed traveling the world as well. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, this was a lot of fun. I feel like I've, I've learned so much. My head's absolutely spinning off oh, the head here. Hope I haven't told you a whole pile of nuts. <laughs> no, awesome. Really, really cool stuff. Like, thank you so much for giving up your time to do this. Really appreciate it. No, no problem. And Hopefully the Queen's guys will be happy with what we've... Yeah, 100%. And big thanks to them for making this one possible. I just pulled it up there. Uh, I might actually end the episode with reading out that Seamus Heaney quote you sent through. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah? I, I just thought it was really lovely, you know. All right. Well, here we go. Sensitivity to the past contributes to our lives in a necessary and salutary way. It's not just a temperamental or intellectual accident like a talent for chess or a passion for whiskey, but a fundamental human gift that is potentially as life-enhancing and civilizing 
as our gift for love. And that's Seamus Heaney, 1993, History of Ireland magazine. Eileen, thank you. Really appreciate it. Perfect. No, thank you. It's been fun.